0: Hey, this is Dan Cogan. I'm one of the pastors at Grace Family in Pleasant Hill, Missouri, and this is our podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today and let you know you matter to us because you matter to God. Enjoy the message. The disciples 12, he had many more individuals who followed him and listened to his teaching, but these were the 12 the Father gave him specifically. And uh, we talked in the importance of the number 12 and what that will mean in the new heaven and uh, the role that the, their names will play and so forth and so on. And the fact that they're very different and very uh, diverse in many ways. And remember, we talked about the fact that they're listed in three groups of four always with Peter, Andrew, James, and John as that inner circle. Uh, Peter always being named first and then uh, really Andrew, James, and Peter um, Really, the, the closest of the three that Jesus had, and then the next four we talked about Philip and Nathaniel and and uh, Matthew. And today we're going to talk about Thomas. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to look at start with John chapter eleven. Now, uh, all you know about <clears throat> all you know about Thomas is that he was doubting Thomas, right? That's so unfortunate. That is not who he was. At all, not in the least, that's just nowhere in the scripture and, you know, it's become a, something you call someone, well, you're just a doubting Thomas. That is just terribly unfortunate as we're going to find out. In fact, I don't know, if you had to ask me which disciple I would tend to identify with, it would be Thomas more than any of the others based on what we know about them. And uh, hopefully by the time we're done this morning, you'll, you'll have a new understanding of Thomas. Let's take a look at chapter 11. Now, you know what's going on here. It's the death of Lazarus. So Lazarus is sick. Lazarus and, and, and Mary and Martha, his, uh, the, his sisters, the three of them, a brother and two sisters, were very close friends of Jesus. And they lived in a house in Bethany, just outside of Jerusalem. And Jesus felt very comfortable there and very welcome there. And He enjoyed their company and they enjoyed having him. But Lazarus had grown ill and he'd become sick and they sent word to Jesus and to his disciples to come quickly because Lazarus, the one you love, and Martha and Mary have asked for you to come. But when Jesus heard this, verse 6, all right, chapter 11. So when Jesus heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Father, thank you for your word and speak to us through it and through your servant as it pleases you to do so. In Jesus' name, amen. I like that verse. God doesn't always show up on time, but he's never late. And uh, we would like to be able to dictate what God does when God does it. And in this story, he heard that Lazarus was ill, and so rather than making his way there quickly, he waited two days. Some of you in this room are in that period of waiting for two days right now. You, you, if you've not been, you will be, or you have been. Those times in our life when we've cried out for help, and it appears that no help is coming, uh, that we know he's hurt us based on his word, but why hasn't things changed? Why hasn't things happened? And why does he tarry? And there's a reason for everything, and that's one of the most wonderful things about being a follower of Jesus Christ and a member of the, of the church of, of, of our Lord and Savior is the sovereignty of God, that nothing is by accident, nothing is by happenstance, and as the apostle Paul said, all things will someday show that they can work together for your own Good. That's hard, in fact, impossible for us to see sometimes this side of heaven. But certainly here, one that he loved, that he cared dearly for, and rather than running there, immediately he waited two days. And you can imagine the disciples were somewhat confused by that. And so they said to him, Rabbi, well, he said, then then after this he said, let's go to Judea again. Then the disciples said to him, Rabbi, verse 8, the Jews are now seeking to stone you, Are you going there again? Every time Jesus is in the area up around the Sea of Galilee where the majority of these disciples came from, every time he's up there, uh, he has huge crowds. That's where he fed the thousands, and that's where there were so many people crowding to see him. He had to get in a boat and set out into the lake and teach. There was huge crowds of people. It was always very popular up in the Galilee area north of Jerusalem, but whenever he went down to Jerusalem, he was always Faced with tremendous opposition and in tremendous danger from those who wanted to kill him. And the disciples knew this. And they're saying, look, we got good crowds up here. Everybody likes us. Why in the world do you want to go back down there? In fact, you know, we've all heard if you show up back down there again, they're going to stone you. They're going to kill you. Jesus answered and said in verse nine, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world Verse 10, but if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Basically, he's saying, I've got nothing to hide. I'm going to go and do the work the Father has sent me to do. I'm not going to be sneaking around and, and being afraid of anything. And verse 11, after saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep but I'm going to go and awaken him. Now, Lazarus is in Jerusalem. It's just outside of Jerusalem. So if they're going to go to Bethany, they're really going to go to Jerusalem. And that's what they were saying. We don't want you to go. He said, Lazarus, our friend is asleep, but I'm going to go and waken him. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's falling asleep, then he'll get up on his own. Basically he'll recover. If he's only asleep, we don't have to go. <laughs> you know, uh, if it's not that serious, we, we don't have to go. Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought he really meant resting and sleep. So then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Okay, they're pretty confused by this point about all of this. Uh, If Lazarus has died, why didn't you go earlier? And now we're going to go and he's already dead. And what does all this mean? And, And so... I know sometimes we're hard on these disciples, but they were really absorbing a lot in a short amount of time. And just about the time they probably got thinking they had it figured out, they realized they didn't have it figured out. So they're going to go. Jesus is going to go, even though Lazarus is dead, even though they waited a couple of days and Jesus said, he's not sleeping, he's dead. And and even all of that, they're going to go. So this is the first time Chapter uh, 11, verse 16, the first time we hear of Thomas in the, in the, as a disciple, the first time he's mentioned making any statement or doing anything, here it is right here, verse 16. So Thomas called Didymus, meaning the twin. Did you know Thomas was a twin? Nowhere, anywhere in Scripture does it refer to his twin, his either brother or sister. Um, nowhere is it ever spoken of. So, but he was known as the twin. And uh, it wouldn't be terribly uncommon to think that perhaps he was the surviving twin. Perhaps his twin didn't survive, and that's why they called him that, uh, perhaps. And that would maybe make some sense. But it's interesting that they called him the twin. He was a twin. And he said to his fellow disciples, Well, let us go that we may die with him. Now, none of the other disciples said that. Um, Thomas, I don't think there's any doubt in, in anyone's mind as you look at him. He's not a doubting Thomas, but he is a rather pessimistic Thomas. He does see things on the dark side, so to speak. And many of you in this room experience that in your daily life. Uh... He he he's willing to accept that this is going to happen. It's like the worst that could happen. If he's going to go and die, then let's go and die with him. Now, on the surface, that sounds like a really pessimistic, uh, defeatist kind of statement to make. But I want you to turn it around a little bit. Let's imagine, and I don't think we're... This is not stretching at all because the other two things we're going to see about Thomas. He is one who's probably... I'm getting ahead of myself, but in order to make the point, you remember the night of the resurrection, the disciples were all in the upper room, except who wasn't with them. The one that wasn't with them was Thomas. He was no doubt so discouraged, he couldn't even show up and hang out with him. He was so in love with the Lord and what Christ had done, and probably in his life, he had been one who had been discouraged most of his life. If if indeed he was a surviving twin, that might have something to do with it. But he had this sort of pessimistic attitude about things. And when he met Jesus, all of that changed. And now he had hope and he had something to look forward to and he 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 loved to be with Jesus and he he found great great comfort in the Lord, something never found anywhere else. And so what you see in these few little glimpses of Thomas every time we see him is he's terrified that God, that, that this peace that he's found in Christ is going to be taken away from him. He's terrified that Jesus is going to leave him. And so he doesn't want that to happen. And so really, he's not a doubting Thomas. He's a deeply in love with Jesus Thomas. And he doesn't want that to change. In other words, probably in his life, he's been pessimistic. He may have had some really dark times. He may have been incredibly depressed. What we would look at today is someone who's just incredibly depressed. And and in those those situations, some of you have been in, some people you live with, and some of your friends have been with. And he encounters Jesus, and all of that begins to change. But then Jesus is talking about his death and leaving them and all of that. And every time he does... What you hear from Thomas is this. Basically, if you're going to die, then I want to die too because there's nothing for me to live for if you're not here. That's what we hear in Thomas. Not a a helplessness, but rather, without Jesus, there's no reason to go on because Jesus brought him the joy and the comfort and the peace he was looking for. But yet, he's not quite fully there yet. He doesn't fully understand the whole picture, and he's still very much afraid of losing that peace that he has. And so he says to his other disciples, let us go that we may die with him. That's the first statement we have of Thomas, the twin. And you could say it was somewhat pessimistic. And then let's look at John chapter 20, as Jesus appears to the disciples. In John 20, I just said this, verse 19, on the evening of the first day, this is after the resurrection the uh, disciples were locked behind some doors for fear that they were going to be arrested next. And Jesus came to them and he, he said to them, peace be with you. He showed up in the room. And when they saw this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, as we've said so many times here, the realized presence of the risen Lord always brings joy in the life of a believer. And they were overjoyed when they saw the Lord And Jesus said, peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And he breathed on them, and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. However, verse 24, now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, there it is again, was not with them when Jesus came. They were all there except for Thomas. Now, you remember, if Thomas is the one who says, if you're going to go and you're going to die then we're going to die with you because I got nothing to live for. The greatest fear that Thomas had was this joy, this comfort that he's found in Jesus is going to be taken away from him. Again, probably in his life, that has happened time and time and time again. A man of incredible disappointments. And he's just almost anticipating the next shoe to fall. I don't want to ask you to raise your hands, but how many of you go through life living like that? Even when things are going well, you can't enjoy them because you know it's not going to last. Or you're always anticipating calamity. Or as as the great theologian Mark Twain used to say, the vast majority of things I've worried about in my life, a couple of them actually happened. And that's really how we live our lives. We worry, we fret, we stew, we're concerned. But when Jesus was present physically with with Thomas, he felt good. He felt at peace. He had joy. But he knew that if Jesus were to be gone, he would lose that. He felt that seriously. And so he would rather die than go back to the way he was. He was so frightened of that. And indeed, his greatest fear came true. They went to Jerusalem And Jesus was killed. And that morning of the the Sunday morning, there's all kinds of talk. The women went to the tomb, and it was empty. Some said they talked to Jesus. Peter and John saw an angel, and no one knows what's going on. But Thomas really wants none of it. He's not gathered with the other 11 or 10. Judas has killed himself. He's not gathered with the other 10. Let me ask you something. If you're one who battles with depression, do you want to gather with people? Do you want to hang out with other folks? Or do you want to isolate yourself? Do you want to just curl up and just be in a ball and just cover the, put the covers over your head and never get out of bed again? And I think we see that in Thomas. And I think many of us can experience that, that deal with depression and discouragement in our life. He was so discouraged, he didn't even have the energy to go be with the disciples on the night of of, of Sunday night. Even though there was some talk of his resurrection, Thomas wasn't, he'd been disappointed so many times in his life. He wasn't gonna be disappointed again. He was just going to be discouraged. So verse 24, now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with him when Jesus came. So the other disciples, they sought him out. I like that. They sought him out. And they said to him, we've seen the Lord. Now, you would think that Thomas would just embrace them, right? And say, you've seen him. He's alive. This is the best news imaginable. But he doesn't. This is where we get the idea of doubting Thomas. Rather than to be joyful and and excited and, and content that these other disciples had actually seen Jesus, Thomas, who was isolated, probably in a deep, deep, depressive state, away from everybody else, they come to him and they said, we've seen the Lord. And Thomas says, fine for you, but unless I see his hands and the mark of his nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side. Listen to this. I will never believe. Now, that's someone who has hit rock bottom. That's someone who has probably in his life, maybe he was the surviving twin And his his twin passed away. He had difficulty in his life. He was challenged with many things and given to depression in deep, dark times. Jesus comes. There's hope. There's life. There's joy. His one fear now is that Jesus is going to leave us, and that's exactly what happened. And he probably just crumbles right back into everything he'd been before. And he says, see, nothing ever works out. It's always going to be like this. I'm never going to get my hopes up again. You come to me, Peter, Andrew, James, John, Nathaniel, Philip, Or you come to me and you tell me you've seen him. Doesn't matter what you tell me. It doesn't even matter if I see him. I'm not going to believe it. It's a vision. The only way I'm going to believe he's really alive is if I can. And this is a really almost a grotesque description. He's saying, basically, I've got to put my finger through the nail print and put my hand in the side. Nothing less than that is going to get me to believe because I believed once. Once. And look where it got me. And I'm not doing that again. So desperate was he. And again, I think some of us in this room can identify with our brother Thomas. We're so prone to darkness and to sorrow. And, to, and it's not that there isn't a lot of darkness and sorrow in the world. There is. And probably if you looked at Thomas's life, there was a lot of reasons he turned out the way he did. But listen to me, church. Listen to me, church. Listen to me. Jesus selected Thomas. I mean, if you're going to select one of, of 11 who are going to follow you and, 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 and plant your church here on earth, would you pick this depressed guy? Jesus picked him. Because Jesus saw something in him, probably a, a humbleness, a sweetness, a tenderness that maybe Peter, James, and John didn't have. And just because your disposition and your may have, you may struggle with these things in your life doesn't disqualify you from doing things for the Lord, even great things. Because in our weakness, he's made strong so we don't all have to look around. We don't all have to be like Peter or James or John. There's room for us if we're like Thomas, if we are struggling with discouragement and depression. And we do have that tendency to be pessimistic. And Satan comes at us and he attacks us with that. So here we see Thomas tell these other disciples, if he's going to go to Jerusalem, let's go with him so that we can die with him. Not let's go with him so we can be victorious. That's not the point. At least if he's dead, we'll be dead. Because I don't want to live if he's not living. And then he goes to Jerusalem and he dies. And Thomas is so discouraged. He doesn't even go hang out with the other disciples. They have to go and find him. They give him the great news. He says, I'm never going to believe it. I don't care if I saw him standing there. I'm not going to believe it unless I can take my finger and put it in the nail print. And take my hand and put it in the side. Eight days later. Now, you think about that. Eight long days later. Some of you are in the eight days. Jesus didn't come to Thomas that moment. He could have, but he didn't. Imagine what those eight nights were like. The other disciples were sort of in a buzz about Jesus being alive, and they'd seen him, but Thomas didn't believe any of it. And no matter how depressed and discouraged he was, he no doubt got more depressed and more discouraged the first night, and the second night, and the third night, fourth night, fifth night, sixth night, been a whole week, seventh night. If this Jesus is alive, I would. Obviously, it's been a week. And then what happened? Eight days later, the disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Now, I do like the idea that Thomas is with them. And I get the sense that they probably went and got him (laughs) and just said, you're going to be here. All right. We're not going to leave you alone. Leave no man behind, Thomas. You weren't with us last time. You're going to be with us this time. And there's a message there for the church to not, to, to be patient with people who are in discouragement and depression and to love on them and to weep with those who won't weep and mourn with those who mourn, but don't leave them alone and don't leave them in isolation. And they went and they brought Thomas and they brought him there and Thomas is with them. And then Jesus showed up again and he said, peace be to you. And he looked at Thomas and he said, Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands, and put your hand in this place and put it in my side. Jesus had known what Thomas had said. Do not disbelieve, but believe. He just loved the fact that Jesus understood Thomas's depression and his sorrow and his angst. And he doesn't scold him for it, he comes to him in love and he says, Thomas. I heard, I know you said you'd have to put your finger in my hands and your hand in my side, so here it is. I'll offer them to you. Go ahead. Don't believe. Uh, don't disbelieve any longer, but rather believe. And then Thomas answered him in verse 28. Perhaps the most, the most amazing and most profound statement of truth ever made by an individual in the New Testament. My Lord and my God. God. He realized this was not just Jesus, the rabbi. This was God, the one who spoke the world into being, the one who called Moses, the one who was in the bush, the the burning bush, the, the one who's the Alpha and the Omega. He realized this was the creator. This was the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob standing right before him. My Lord and my God, no longer a man of disbelief. Jesus said to him, you have believed because you've seen me. Blessed are those who have not seen me and who yet believe. And here we see that that Jesus... In his love and his affection, his attention for Thomas comes to him and and, and meets him at the point of his greatest need. Thomas does not need to put his hand in his fingers in the holes and the nail prints and the side prints. Thomas realizes that the risen Lord is there. He realizes now he begins to see the full picture. And he says, my Lord and my God. And things begin to change. Listen to me carefully, church. Your joy comes from the realized presence of the risen Lord. It doesn't come from anything else. It doesn't come from a clean bill of health at your doctor. It doesn't come from a big bank account. It doesn't come because all your friends and neighbors and family love you. Those things can make your circumstances happier, but your real joy that sustains you and keeps you going comes from knowing that no matter what happens, the risen Lord is real and your salvation is secured and your home in heaven is made and you will have that for all eternity and no man can take him out of your hand. And he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And, and because of the resurrection, there is nothing that can defeat you. Amen. Amen. In the words of Martin Luther in that great hymn, the body they may kill, but God's word abideth still. I mean, you, you'll lose this life, but guess what? Everyone's going to lose their life. No one gets out of this life alive we're all going to die. But because of what Jesus did, because he took your punishment and my punishment upon himself, because he went to the grave and he defeated the grave and he burst forth out of the grave and he is alive, we too shall live. He has defeated sin and death, our great enemy. It is completely defeated. And while we will have difficulty here on this earth, as as James says in his little epistle, this world is full of trouble and difficulty, but after all, it won't last very long. (laughs) He gives us a sense of perspective on that. Compared to eternity, it's just like a vapor or a fog. It may be really bad now, but it is not going to last. What's going to last is joy unspeakable in the glory and the presence of God. That's what's going to last. That's our inheritance. That's what we have. Because Jesus is alive, there is nothing that can separate Separate us from him, and we will be with him for all eternity. And I don't care who you are today, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have repented of your sin, and you've called him Lord, every disease in your body will one day be healed. Every disease. I know we battle them now, and some of you in this room are battling cancer and other things, and we talk about battling cancer, and we're grateful we live in a time. And we have far more medications and far more treatments and a higher survival rate. That's all a gift of God to this generation. I really do believe that. We're grateful. But at the end of the day, folks, we're not going to win the battle against death, this side of heaven, but we've already been given eternal life. And one day, listen to me, when your eyes close in death, whatever disease your body has is completely cleaned away and you will never be sick another day in your life in eternity. Every disease, he will heal. Every brokenness, he will heal. That is an assurity. That is a hope. How do we get through these days? By the hope of future glory. Knowing that because he lived and died and rose again, that these troubles and difficulties won't last very long. And one day, he'll heal every hurt. He'll He'll heal every disease. We'll never be sorrowful. We'll never be sad. We'll never have a pain. We'll never have an ache. We'll never have a broken relationship. It'll be perfect forever. That is our hope. And all of a sudden, when, when Thomas saw Jesus in all of his glory and realized he's God, then Thomas began to get a perspective on things. And Jesus actually defeated death. Perhaps the one thing, if indeed, and I know I may, maybe this isn't so, but if it were, if, if indeed... Maybe Certainly Thomas had lost loved ones to death at that point. We all had, but perhaps if he'd lost his twin, you know, death was all around him. And here he sees that Jesus defeated death, his greatest enemy, completely. He no longer had to fear death. What a change that is. And he says, my Lord and my God. There's no doubting in Thomas. He knows exactly who Jesus is. And the only Thomas the thing that Thomas dealt with was that he loved Jesus so much he didn't want to live without him. And now he realized that he doesn't have to, that Jesus lives for all eternity. In Mark's gospel, there's a man who brings his son to Jesus, and he's got tremendous problems, and... The disciples tried to heal him and couldn't, and so they bring him to Jesus. And you remember the father cries out, and he says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And that's sort of my life's message. That's my life Bible verse. It's my life scripture. Lord, I believe, but the very next breath, help my unbelief. And in a sense, that's kind of where where we see Thomas through his life. He believed, but yet he knew he was struggling with unbelief, and and he knew that he was struggling with discouragement, and the one thing he didn't want to do is lose Jesus, and then when he lost Jesus, he went into a deeper place of darkness and and disbelief until Christ came to him, and like the other disciples, when he saw the risen Lord, he was overjoyed, and he changed everything. Everything. The realization of the resurrection, that Jesus lived, died, and rose again, sits at the right hand of the Father, makes intercession for us, is coming again to receive us to him, that where he is, we will be also. All of that is so vitally important. John's gospel records it in John chapter 14, that very famous and wonderful passage in John 14. Jesus says this Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. And if it were not so, I would have told you. And I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you will be also. And you know where, the way where I'm going. And Thomas, verse 5, Thomas says to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Here again, this is before. Thomas is just so concerned that he doesn't lose sight of where Jesus is. We want to go with you. And Jesus says to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Oh, listen, church, this morning, the cure for our ailments, our discouragement, our depression, our, our, the problems, the difficulties we have in this life, sometimes the complete cure for that is not going to come until we're in heaven. And it'll all be made right. The apostle Paul asked three times to have the thorn in his flesh removed and God basically said it's there for a reason and someday you'll know what it is. Not every thorn in our flesh is removed this side of heaven, but listen, every thorn in our flesh is removed in heaven and we never have to battle those again. And here's the good news. In Thomas' deepest and darkest discouragement, Jesus came to him and brought him comfort. And so I don't care what kind of pit you're in, as Corey Ten Boom says, whatever pit you're in, God's grace is deeper still. And whatever you're going through in life, God will give you the grace hourly to handle it. You may want the grace for weeks to come, and he may not give you the grace to handle it for weeks to come, but he'll give you the grace to handle it hour by hour, minute by minute, if you will look to him. If you will see him in all of his risen glory, if you'll see him in all of his immense love for you, when he showed them his hands and his side, he was showing them how much, Thomas, I loved you. I loved you enough to do this for you. If I hadn't done this for you, Thomas, you could not live forever. You could not be with me in heaven. And the same he did for each of us who know him as our Lord and Savior. He did the same thing. He laid down his life. He not only took the incredible pain of physical crucifixion, but the unimaginable torment of the holy wrath of a holy God poured out upon him for the sin of all who would be redeemed for every lie, for every murder, for every act of incest. All of that wrath that had to be worked out was worked out on Jesus for all the sin of those who'd be redeemed. No one can imagine the torment he went through. And when he did that, because he loves us, you're loved that much. And when Thomas looked at Jesus and saw him in the risen as the risen Lord, and he cried out and he said, my Lord and my God. Everything about Thomas' life changed. John MacArthur writes it this way. Thomas made probably the greatest statement ever come from the lips of an apostle when he said, my Lord and my God. He said, let those who would ever question the deity of Christ meet Thomas. Thomas. Suddenly, Thomas' melancholy, comfortlessness, negative, moody tendencies were banished by one single appearance of the risen Christ. And in that very moment, Thomas transformed into a great evangelist. A short time later at Pentecost, along with all the other disciples, he was filled with the Holy Spirit and empowered for ministry. Like his comrades, he took the gospel to the end of the earth. There's a considerable amount of testimony... That suggests Thomas carried the gospel to India. And to this day, there's a small hill near the airport in Madras, India, where Thomas is said to have been buried. There are churches in South India whose roots are traceable to the beginning of the church age, and tradition says they were founded through the ministry of Thomas. The strongest traditions say that he was martyred for his faith by being run through with a spear fitting form of martyrdom for one whose faith came of age when he saw the spear mark in his master's side and for the one who he longed to be reunited with. I hope you enjoyed the podcast today. If you did, be sure to subscribe to our show so the most recent episode will always be in your feed ready whenever you are. And secondly, if Grace Family has impacted you and you'd like to help us continue to reach others, you can click the link in the description and make a donation now. And we'll see you next time on the Grace Family Podcast.